You are listening to Muslim in Moderation, discussions on minority culture, identity and politics, with Ali Ahmed. Rationalism, in the form of science, secular humanism and new atheism, has continued to gain prominence in the marketplace of ideas. But it often seems like the supporters of these ideas aren't really all that rational. In fact, some of them seem to be downright radical and fanatical, which are labels normally reserved for religionists. So what's going on here? Episode 3 of the podcast features Dr. Azim Sharif, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in the Department of Psychology at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Sharif is a social scientist who focuses on the intersection of morality with religion, culture, and economics. His research includes a particularly contentious project finding that declines in religiosity are associated with increased crime rates in societies with low average IQ. Dr. Sharif, from what I've encountered of the intellectual dark web or new atheism, the main intellectuals appear genuine, thoughtful, and nuanced. But I wonder how much of the recent success of these ideas is because their criticism of religion has been focused on Islam and Muslims. Because while the academics might be fine, the discourse from the supporters looks more orientalist, tribal, and uncivil. Yeah, you know, I totally agree with you here. I've been trying to figure out what the intellectual dark web is. I was speaking with Michael Shermer, who He's the editor of Skeptic, and he considers himself a member of this. And so I was asking him what he thinks the intellectual dark web is. And one of the things he pointed out is that there are a group of people who are willing to talk to anybody, which I think is probably true, but I don't think that only members of the intellectual dark web do that. So somebody like Ezra Klein, who certainly would consider himself a member of the intellectual dark web, does that as well. So I was trying to think about what differentiates those two. And I think what it is is that the intellectual dark web is a group of people who are skeptical of certain aspects of the left, specifically the what you call the woke left. So, so they're sort of an anti-woke group of people. Now, I agree that they are nuanced and thoughtful thinkers, but that anti-wokeness attracts other people who are not woke and maybe not woke for different reasons, right? So I think that the intellectual dark web academic thinkers probably have very good reasons to be skeptical of some of the more progressive elements of the left, the woke elements of the left, but you also have very regressive people who are not woke, right? So you have, well, you have white supremacists who are not woke. And, and so the, the anti-woke aspect of the intellectual dark web is going to attract unnuanced, not thoughtful, very reactive, racist elements of the Twitter sphere and of of the population in general. So I'll actually give you a little story, right? So that paper that I just mentioned, where we, we talk about IQ differences, right? So any topic that in psychology that talks about IQ differences is already very controversial. So when you submit a paper to a journal, you have to help the editor, you suggest some potential reviewers. And so we were trying to dig up reviewers who might be willing to review the paper, who the editor might consider to review the paper. And a lot of the IQ researchers had these well, borderline white supremacist views, or were accused of at least having borderline white supremacist views. And so the, the kind of phrase that I, occurred to me was that, you know, not all people who believe in group differences in IQ are racist white supremacists, but all racist white supremacists believe in differences in IQ, group differences in IQ. And so I think there's probably something similar going on with the fans of the intellectual dark web, right? So not all... <laughs> People in the intellectual dark web are anti-Muslim reactionaries, but I think anti-Muslim reactionaries find themselves drawn to, to members of the intellectual dark web. 
because of the kind of areas of overlap. And I think to be fair, the pro-religion side on social media is also serving up a lot of terrible arguments. When you put both sides together, it's like what we see in politics. All the rational discussion is getting drowned out. And that's the concern that I have with rationalism. It assumes people can consistently act without bias. And that's just not true. The whole field of behavioral economics has arisen because people don't always act reasonably or in their own best interests. So that gets me thinking, if psychologically people are unable to shake their biases and beliefs, wouldn't the rational response be to have greater accommodation of these beliefs rather than less? Very interesting question, right? So I think you're right that the opposition to members of the intellectual dark web or the new atheists, you know, it's not a completely overlapping category, though there is a lot of overlap between them. It also has this sort of reactionary sense, right? So as far as we can tell, there's, there's as many smart people on either side of the political spectrum. And there's, well, let's say that a general split will do a, a liberal conservative split. You tend to see that there's generally smart people on both sides and there's generally not smart people on both sides. The generally not smart people are going to still be drawn to members of their tribe, but for probably weaker reasons, right? So they'll have these extreme non-thoughtful positions, but still be associating with people on, on your side. And so you'll have those not great arguments for positions that you're sympathetic for. It's an uncomfortable thing to, to hold in your head. It's uncomfortable to have those centers strange bedfellows that you end up with when you're on a particular side of argument. In terms of the question about whether we should be more or less tolerant of religious ideas, I think the challenge is that when you have competing values, when you have value pluralism, the challenge becomes not to determine who's right, but to determine how different people who believe different things can live harmoniously together. And to do that, I think you have to put certain values as paramount. So Isaiah Berlin talked about the idea that if you have value pluralism, the one idea that has to be put above all other values is freedom, because that's the one that allows people to pursue the value that they actually consider paramount. So you construct a society around freedom, which is why I think the United States, for all its flaws, has worked pretty well for integrating a bunch of people with different ideas and cultures. Our country of Canada, I think, is, has done even better. It has somewhat less freedom than the United States, but it's put as its paramount value something like pluralism. So it's really prioritized the idea of bringing together in somewhat harmonious ways people who have different cultures and, and different moral priorities. And so whatever institutions you can set up to maximize those two goals of freedom and pluralism is the way to have this moral pluralism flourish. And that, I think, leads me to conclude that you need actually yeah, more tolerance for religious ideas, at least so long as they sit alongside as much tolerance and freedom and pluralism for non-religious ideas. So just on that point about pluralism and tolerance, we've been talking about Twitter and social media. The internet in general has allowed people to reach huge masses, but also to form these really specific sub-communities. And that's something that seems to make civil discourse more difficult rather than easier. How do you see the influence of the internet on the issues that we've been discussing? To be honest, in the research on social media, we're still finding our footing. There was this, the first sense, it's like we've gone through three phases here, right? So the first sense was that this connective technology would be great, right? So Neil Ferguson calls this the sort of everything is awesome phase that will become this great kumbaya community because we'll all be connected to each other. And then there was, of course, this backlash where people started really 
becoming concerned about political polarization and trying to find an explanation for the worsening polarization in the states and around the world. And social media was an obvious potential candidate for the cause of that. So you saw that kind of between 2014, 2018, or people still talk about it now. Very recently, there's been a backlash to that backlash in the research community where they're talking about how the idea of Twitter creating these echo chambers and fomenting political polarization has been somewhat overstated. That said, there's still more research being done. There's a lot more research being done in the area of moral outrage, which I find very interesting because it's a a very keen feature of Twitter. And so I think we're in the next few years, really just two or three years, we're going to discover a lot scientifically about the impact that Twitter has psychologically and politically and socially. And so in that sense, I want to reserve ultimate judgment. But I will say that I do think it has some benefits in the context of the freedom and pluralism argument that I was making before, insofar as it does allow minorities to find a place because they don't have the the sort of barriers and friction that you have in real life, because you can easily get in contact with other people or easily find information from other people, you can find your place better. And so in that sense, I think it's allowed, say, atheists in communities where atheism is more suppressed or is just smaller to be able to find like-minded people. And in that sense, I think it's contributed to the rise of non-religious or a group of atheists not because it's created the atheism, but it's sort of allowed people to have access to information that's, well, I guess in that sense it has created atheism. It's allowed people to have access to information which has led them to maybe disaffiliate or lose their religion, or at least find like-minded people in a, what's, what can be a marginalized community. So in that sense, it's, it's, there's good aspects to it from the freedom and pluralism position. Obviously, this giving very loud voice to a very vocal minority on the extremes can be bad. It allows, I guess, terrorist groups to recruit. What the research tends to find is that most, the vast majority of people actually don't end up polarized. The vast majority of people tend to share more politically moderate things than you would expect. It's just these really extreme people on the end that that seem to get very polarized and very isolated in these homophilous and homogenous communities. So the jury's still out. Dr. Sharif, it's been a pleasure. We have another topic lined up, so we'll speak again soon. All right. Thank you for listening to Muslim in Moderation. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating. A new episode will be out monthly. For guest profiles, episodes and show notes, visit www.musliminmoderation.com.